Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, where we bring you weekly conversations with purpose-driven leaders. Our focus is to share meaningful conversations with purpose-driven people having a big social impact in our community. Our mission is to enable you to listen, connect, and grow. You can learn more at humansofpurpose.com.au. Just making, you know, workplaces a place where you can just be that normal human, be yourself as much as you can, rather than being someone else. Um, And then understanding how can we create those places and then how can we create work, a place where you can grow and develop so it's not like this empty place in your life that you go and you waste eight hours just doing something, you actually grow as a person. Welcome back to the podcast and great to have you with us as always. Well, those are the wise words of Chloe Haman, who is the Director of People Science at CultureAmp. Chloe has a background in organizational development, well-being, and psychology, and she spends her time thinking a lot about how to optimize workplaces, how to encourage positive workplace behaviors, and how to influence really positive culture change. So needless to say, this was a fascinating conversation uh, for me, and I hope you really enjoy our chat. Well, last week's cold snap certainly brought some early snow and had me shivering and also thinking about some warmer pastures, holidays, and what will I be doing next to embark on a personal growth and development journey? Well, that's where the wonderful team at Mountains and Marathons come in. They want you to join them for a six-month leadership program set in sunny Honolulu to culminate by running the Honolulu Marathon as part of the Honolulu Marathon Leadership Program. The team are so committed to having you join them, they're actually going to pay for your flights to and from Hawaii to join them for this wonderful experience. This is an offer exclusive to Humans of Purpose subscribers. So if you do want to learn more, just head to mountainsmarathons.world slash Honolulu. I'll drop a link in the show notes for you to direct click through and just head down to the inquiry form and just type in Humans of Purpose in the Where Did You Hear About Us section. As always, I want to send a special thank you and shout out to our, our Patreon supporters, Misha D and wife, Joel F, Stuart M and McCartan. Your ongoing support uh, each month has been tremendous for Humans of Purpose and helps us grow and perform each and every week. If you're loving the show and looking for a way to become a bit more involved, I do recommend also joining that great team and becoming a patron. Just head to patreon.com slash humans of purpose. And by doing so, I'll thank you each week, but also give you priority access to all offers, competitions, and partner opportunities via guests and brands that connect with the podcast. So, Chloe, welcome to the pod. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Hi. I'm so happy that you you were able to ride over. Very impressive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, the trains are down, so didn't necessarily have a choice, but it was a good ride. It's a great effort, a very stylish arrival. I'm really pumped to have you on the show. I thought before we got started, um, and I am really keen to hear about all things culture and well-being, um, lead us in with a little bit about your background and how you got to be here today. Yeah, sure. I'll try keep it brief. Um, so I, I guess at uni I did study psychology, although I actually started studying marine biology, um, and then realised I'd be left alone in a lab um, and didn't like that. So I sort of realised the human side of things was always really important to me. So did psychology, did HR, um, with kind of the idea that I, you know, knowing that I really wanted to make workplaces better, um, but went into HR and was a little bit. Uh, I guess disillusioned because I'm not very good at following rules. So traditional HR 10 or 15 years ago wasn't the best place for me. Is it a highly rules-based environment? Uh, yeah. A lot of it was around contracts, working with unions, so really important but not really for me. <laughs> um, and then did a little bit of work, jumped around a bit, did some work helping people find jobs when they were unemployed, 
um, then got into psychometrics and spent a lot of my career working in psychometrics, so personality testing and mm. cognitive mm. ability testing, a lot around how you can help people learn about themselves and then develop. Yep. And that was an area I sort of fell in love with and spent a good chunk of time in that. Um, but it so was a bit about like putting a bit of numbers and measurement behind yep. a lot of the human qualities. Absolutely. Yep. So it was, and at the time I was like, excellent, we can measure all these things that make us human. <laughs> I was a bit disillusioned, like everything can be kind of cornered off and put into a square. Yep. And then you realize, no, everything's a spectrum. Um, How did you, I mean, it's interesting, but I was interested by what you said a bit earlier about um, trying to make workplaces better. Like, because you would have been, that would have been fairly early on. How did you know, or what did you think was wrong with workplaces that sort of needed attention? Yeah, I think a lot of it came from, um, I guess, your family and your how your, your people in your life talk about work. And I didn't want to go to work because everyone who I encountered kind of complained about their day and had this, oh, I really don't want to wake up and go to work and work's boring. And my dad was in, uh, obviously quite into his work but spent a lot of time there but never seemed particularly happy. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't quite understand this adult world of not liking work. I was like, why mm. do you want to why, why does this why exist? Why do you keep going back every day? Why do you keep going back every no day? Like, and I was like, this doesn't seem – I felt like there was like kind of this puzzle problem that people were in almost the wrong jobs. And I had this image in my head that everybody just needed to do this kind of reshuffling. Yep. And part of my role was to help this reshuffling occur. Yeah. And that's sort of why I got into career guidance, to help people reshuffle into the right places. Mm. And so I cut you off. Then you said you did a bit of um, career guidance and advice for people who were looking for employment and whatnot. And um, – how did you make your way to Culture Ramp? What were the steps along the way? <laughs> a few more steps. Yeah. Uh, so I was helping people find um, careers or things that they loved and then carried on doing career guidance, got into psychometrics, um, realized I want to do more studies, so went back and did my master's in org psych. And at that time, positive psych had become a thing. Yep. So when I was studying, it was pretty much clinical psychology mm. or, or nothing yep. um, or various arms within that. And then Martin Seligman sort of brought positive psychology to life. And mm. at that time, I was like, okay, I can go back and study this. And then I, I was thinking back on my work in consulting. It was an incredible experience. But a lot of the time I was in a suit. Look at me now. I'm in leggings. I'm not a suit person. You, you, you look very relaxed in that look. I could so, imagine you were in a suit also, but I, I haven't seen you in a suit yet. So, so No, it wasn't, it wasn't my thing. I felt like I was sort of dressing up um, and that was me. And so my only rule for my next job was that I could I had to be able to wear jeans to the interview. So that was... That's the dream. It was kind of a standard, but I mean that it was, yes, it was like a weird rule I have to wear jeans to the interview, but it meant, okay, I'm starting to look for culture and workplaces that really mm. resonate with who I am and let you be your own person. Even though I don't know how to describe it like that, that's what I was looking for. Mm. Um and I got a job working at a tourism company in New Zealand that was part of a Better by Design program. And I was hired in as their first um, culture person. People in culture wasn't even a term that was used back then. Yeah. So I kind of got hired by the CEO to come in and do this kind of culture magic That's stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, um, wow. So what, what size of company was it? 700 people. Oh, wow. Um, Significant. Yeah. And I actually, uh, HR at that time um, was a more traditional operation in the company. Yes. So I actually joined the marketing team. So oh, really? I was a culture person in the marketing team and it makes sense. I was aligning kind of the external brand promise to the internal brand yep. promise. So I spent a lot of time doing that and then sort of fell in love with this thing called culture. Mm. Um, and then had an amazing, you know, few years working at tourism company and then realized actually I want to give this working for myself thing a go mm. um, and see if I could take this, you know, help to great build great cultures to more organizations. So I left there and started my own business that was incredibly hard. 
so hard. I don't like sending invoices, which is not a oh, good... Oh, man. So don't like asking people for money. It's kind of fundamental to running yeah, your own business. It's the most awkward part of any, uh, I think, running your own business is like, okay, I did the work. Can I be paid now? Yeah. It was, and I was like, I just want to work for free. <laughs> yeah, and I got yeah. business coaching. That's, that's not a good business model, Chloe. No. Um, I got some great advice from a, a previous CEO that I used to work um, because I just wasn't sending invoices, mm. like not avoiding it, just mm. just not doing it. Really not good. Um, and he said, create an alias email account called um, my company was work by design or yep. admin at work by design yep. and send your invoices from that account. Yep. That did the trick. It's genius. And I love it. So I wish it, I was like doing more of my own business now and I could use that advice. You could use it. It was great. Interesting. So yeah. it'd be like, Chloe appreciates your swift payment. Oh, the, the old uh, like. Third voice. Yeah. Yep. I love that. It was great. I had a it's, character. Isn't it fascinating that that would make a different to difference to people's behavior and response? Yeah. Um, Yes, human behavior. Very interesting. Another uh, passion of yours. It's definitely. We'll and get to that. I do. And I, I always I experiment a lot on myself. So, so yes, I did that. Uh, and then I, you know, I was working with a handful of customers and helping them. What I was helping them do was they were doing surveys and running engagement survey, running engagement surveys, um, but really struggling to do anything with the results mm. and didn't really know how to structure their culture, even that you know, what does this culture think that I need to build that is amazing? Um, so I was helping them just really implement some good organizational design and development procedures. And at that time, CultRamp was uh, very small. It was less than 20 people. Really? And they Sounds were yeah working out of Inspire 9, yep. Series A funding. And yep. my brother and I at the same time were building um, an app for helping leaders build small leadership habits. And he said, oh, there's a group of people up in Inspire 9. They're doing some really good stuff and that culture stuff you do. I think you should check them out. Yeah, so, that culture stuff you do, that, that old chestnut. That, that thing, I was like, right, you mean my whole career? And yeah, he's yeah. like, oh, yeah, that, that little side project. <laughs> <laughs> Got to love brothers. Yeah. Um, but it was it's actually because of him that I found Culture M. Yeah. So I you know, emailed them and said, oh, you know, I'm interested. And I was actually approaching them to see if the – Coltrane platform would be good mm. for the customers, my mm. clients that I was working with, mm. as a you know a faster way to get data. Because one of the struggles is that if you're using more traditional methods of engagement surveys, it takes months to get the data, and yep. I'm not the only impatient person who wants it. Oh, it's lag. You know, like it's not even um, relevant anymore. Absolutely. After a little while. And, yeah, and I would go in and I'd say, okay, well, what data do you have for me mm. to help you? Mm. And they're like, oh, well, we can get it in a few months. Mm. And I was like, oh, no, let's we, we're going to know where to yeah. start. Yeah. So. Um, and so I went through as what was called a contact sales, and they quickly realized that I was a single, single sole trader and not a, <laughs> not a company. But I got put on to Jason McPherson, who's mm. chief scientist. Mm. We had a chat, got along absolutely great. Mm. And he asked me, you know, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm doing a few side projects. And he said, yep. would you have, you know, a couple of days a week to come and help me out with something? Um, and that was it. I sort of joined, and I was there for maybe two weeks. And Didier walked past the desk one day, and he, he was like, you're not going anywhere, are you? And I was like, no, you're stuck with me. That's amazing. So did you get to, how did you, did you know that you could wear jeans by just being in the same space as them? So that was okay for you to, you know, go and try out there? (laughs) (laughs) I actually probably showed up in bike leggings. (laughs) And I'm sure they would have loved that. Well, actually, Jason, when he met me, he had just been for a run. So he was in running gear. That's the that is and the ultimate. He trumped you exactly. I was like, you're your way. I think I was actually probably in a dress, maybe you know, just like a little bit dressed up. He was in running gear. He was sweating. Okay, I had to get him a glass of water. You. It was 
Yeah, was, I think it's remarkable. You rode all the way here from Richmond, and you look like you've just got out of like you know the, <laughs> too kind. You know, you, but like I can imagine, you know, you, you try me like he's just been for a run. Like you thought you were the casual one. He rocks up all, all sweaty and like frazzled and whatnot. But I suppose he's a chief scientist, so there's meant to be a bit of aloofness in the genius. You know, it's exactly, part of it. yeah. exactly. It won me over. I was, I was, yeah, I was in. <laughs> awesome. What? Well, so when? So then you started there, and I, I suppose if I had to describe. You know, if you had to describe what your passions are in understanding sort of people and organisations, it, it must be culture, sort of what is it? And also, you know, um, why do people do the things they do, human behaviour? Um, let me in on that a little bit. Yeah, where do we start? <laughs> so one of the reasons um, sort of went into culture was, yes, this, this massive interest in culture and building kind of organisations or systems and uh, it's how to understand how they can work better together. And if you take kind of the Jason says this he actually said this to me and it was such a beautiful analogy was the human brain is one of the most complicated things in the universe we don't even understand all of mm. it when you're looking at culture you're getting 20, 10 20 hundreds thousands of human brains together and trying to get them to interact it's a great analogy so I was like wow that's and that was like that is an amazing problem to yep. try and work out um, and that's culture it's human beings interacting human brains trying to fire with each other and understand and, and work together in some sort of cohesive nature mm. um and we can set up structures and social norms and things to help that work better mm. um so that was the one part um and then there was this piece around uh development so having a strong and this kind of came from my psychometric background was really interested in helping people build self-awareness yep. and then through that self-awareness you can change so the strong development focus and believing that workplaces are a place that you can grow and develop it's not this transactional environment um and then do you think that's why people go to work to to grow is that part of the uh, reason i definitely like i fundamentally believe it's one of the core ways not the only way but one of the core ways many of us um find or deliver meaning in this world yeah. um so we it, we're driven by a sense of purpose hmm. i and, think um freud always said that the two most important things to really make people fulfilled in life is their work and their relationships yeah. and of course a lot of the relationships are at work and yeah. ironically, a lot of relationships are work. So. <laughs> yes, all the things. Yeah, we're social. We're social meaning-making machines. Yeah. You know, so I think – and most people – I realize it's not a blanket rule, but most people work in a collective environment mm. and we spend so much time there. And I still say this, you know, it's kind of cliche, but we spend, you know, more waking hours at work um, and we spend more time with people at work than we do with anyone else in our lives. Yeah, I think it's so funny how like sometimes in, in a lot of places that I've been in, you know, we spend hours and hours, the most part of our day with people we know almost nothing about and like just really near them, like proximity-wise. How strange. Yeah. Yep. You know, what a, um, what, a, what a way to be. Yeah, so de- and just making, you know, workplaces a place where you can – just be that normal human, be yeah. yourself as much as you can yeah. rather than being someone else. Um, yeah. And then understanding yeah, how can we create those places and then how can we create work, a place where you can grow and develop so it's not like this empty place in your life that you go and you waste eight hours just mm. doing something. You actually grow as a person. And it's one of the biggest sources of growth, I think, in your life um, to making that happen. And then, yeah, I guess the well-being piece is tacked onto that yep. as well. Yeah, and, and I think, do you, are you a person who looks a lot at sort of evolutionary biology as well and sort of think about the savannah and the human tribes and um, how people uh, originally started to connect and form cultures? Yeah, definitely. I've definitely come into a lot of that through the well-being and why we are the way we are. Yeah. And um, 
you know, why we get so uh, anxious in social situations mm. as well. And um, so the well-being stuff is really interesting when you think about our connection with nature. Yeah. I can talk so much about that, but I won't go into that. But You may, you may. Well, go ahead. Blanket rule is nature's good for you. Yeah. Real nature. And there's um, really like amazing research on it. And a lot of that, I think, you know, when you look at it, it goes back to biophily hypothesis that mm. we have this kind of affiliation with nature and it's so connected to our survival. Yeah. Um, it makes sense. So the savannah, all of that elevated rules. So for yourself, if you, one of the really simple things you can do is just get out in nature. Yeah. Um, there's some really good scientists says 20 minutes is optimal. Yep. I think just, yeah, get out where it's you can. It's such an obvious one, isn't it? It is. And yet so over, so overlooked. And yeah. I was just in, I was talking to you about being in Singapore um, mm. two weeks ago. And yep. Singapore is a city that's deliberately focused on being a green space. Yep. And they've created like this forest in the city. And it has to be doing good stuff for people. Oh, it's great. I was, I was in Singapore recently as well. And I, you've got to admire how they plan cities there and how they make an effort to green everything. Is it the Singapore airport that's got like a rainforest in the middle of it? It's got the rainforest and it's got the, uh, the tallest man-made waterfall, indoor waterfall, sorry, in yep. the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love it because I, uh, I did my honours thesis actually, s- super random tangent, but um, on living nature and whether living nature is better than artificial nature. Yeah. And no surprises, living nature is better than artificial yeah. nature, but artificial <laughs> nature is better than nothing. Yeah. Yep. And Singapore, this was over 10 years ago, Singapore at the time um, was just starting out in their green space. And so it was really nice to go back there two weeks ago and I haven't been there since then to see what they've actually done in 10 years. Yeah. Um, so are there any other places you've been to recently that really kind of like capture your heart in terms of how they've been able to integrate nature? Uh, I'm trying to think. Um, recently, I spent a lot of time going to places that involve being in the ocean. Uh, the ocean definitely captures my my attention. How um, to integrate into the office though, no? <laughs> it is. <laughs> this is my original plan of being a marine biologist. Yeah. You see, I just keep going back but to ironically, that. But ironically, you know, like that would have been your perfect environment. But for the lack of people, you could just be, you want to be under the sea, basically. With people. Yeah, with people. Other other workers under the sea would be optimal. It's, like a social collective in the ocean working at things. That's like my together. dream. I think, I think <laughs> there has to be enough niche people like me in the whole world to form this collective. We'll put a call out on the podcast in the notes to any um, fish people looking for underwater <laughs> cultures to join. Exactly. Snorkeling lunchtime. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Um, Oh, no, yeah, I think, I mean, New York's actually a fascinating place as far as another, I think about non-traditional places that are like bringing in nature. New York's done some amazing work in terms of bringing Mm. green places in. Um, And a lot of workplaces, you know, I was, when I go into workplaces, quite interested in environmental psychology just from a well-being perspective, like your environment is one of the things that massively impacts on your well-being and your behaviour as well. Um, I like that you can take control of it a bit though as well. Like, you know, people are clever now with things like, uh, standing desks a bit, moving around, making yourself go outside, adding some green plants and stuff to your workspace. Like even if you work in a real dump or an unattractive building, you, there are things that you can do to offset that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's one of the things if um, when you talk about well-being, if you want to improve your well-being and you 
really don't want to go for a run or eat any healthier, at least change some of your environmental yeah. things and it's all going to make some friends and then change your environment. <laughs> Do you read about that study as I was some time ago? I'm sure it's quite a famous study in the space, but that hospital where they did that, uh, that controlled trial where they had, um, there was one side of the hospital that faced onto a park and yeah. you're looking at greenery, the other side faced onto traffic and they found the you know, well-being and recovery times of the ones looking at the greenery, the patients on that side to be significantly higher. Yep, absolutely. A lot yeah, of that research. Yeah, yeah. There's actually um, really there's I've forgotten her name, so I'm not even going to try and remember. But she's um, done an amazing, amazing podcast actually, mm. and written a book. And she actually went out to prove that nature wasn't as important mm. as everyone claims, yeah. and ended up becoming an absolute advocate. But she takes quite a scientific approach, and she's the one who's says that's a 20 minutes. Um, so she goes out on her lunch breaks and looks spends 20 minutes looking up at the trees. But what she did was looking at neighborhoods and really green neighbourhoods versus not green neighbourhoods of the same socioeconomic um, status. Yep. And she went to uh, pharmacies and was having a look at how much uh, prescription medication was used in the different sections and what she found that in – What a fantastic variable to look at. I l- amazing. So I was like, this is amazing research. And obviously, you know, in neighbourhoods where there wasn't that much greenery, mm. more medication was being prescribed for antidepressants yep. and things like that. So. Yeah, definitely a lot of that. It's fascinating stuff. Um, who would have thought that just like going outside and looking up at the sky or trees or nature for 20 minutes could have such a profound impact? But then again, like isn't that obvious from our history as like a sort of a nomadic tribal people who are always in the environment? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, back to I think your original question around yeah. like how much of that evolution – you know, plays yeah. into it. A lot of it, um, I mean, the social relationship stuff is so important as well. And mm. there's an often misquoted fear or flight. It yep. gets spoken about as, oh, the saber-toothed tiger coming to get you. And a few people talk about it in this new modern way, which is nice to see that it's actually, a lot of it is driven from our, our the real fear of social exclusion. Yeah. Back in the day, if you were excluded from your group or society, mm. that meant imminent death. Yeah. You couldn't survive alone. Mm-hmm. So you we came to really fear the social exclusion mm. um, and a lot of our anxiety and our fight or flight comes from that fear of being rejected by people around us and not feeling a sense of belonging, wrapping back into workplaces, yeah. creating a sense of belonging to avoid some of those fears. So, Yeah, that is fascinating. What, what do you make? I mean, I do feel like um, I have to touch on the point of, you know, is happiness a useful thing to strive for? Is happiness this destination or is it a journey kind of thing? Because I feel like it's a fairly new concept. I feel like if you look at human history, the idea of striving for an optimal state of, you know, like happiness is just very like a kind of maybe a product of uh, modernity, capitalism and a few other things rather than like a natural state of affairs. But but we get fed so much of this stuff from media, social media and whatnot. How do you think about happiness or yeah, do you think, I think about it? I um, I mean, I prefer uh, well-being over happiness. Yeah. Um, I think happiness framed right can be a really useful, I guess, state to strive for or enjoy the journey. But mm-hmm. happiness in kind of a bliss state, yeah. this kind of picture of, I don't know, someone laughing while eating salad kind of thing is, is yeah. not necessarily healthy or realistic and yeah. it can actually do more damage. It makes you think, oh, I'm always striving for something yeah. where I'm a massive believer of the journey. Yeah, I, th- I believe everyone now thinks that they have to be a meditating, salad eating, perfect bodied and faced, uh, no. levitating guru to sort of hit their goals. Yeah, no, absolutely not. And I, what brings you a sense of kind of like, I guess, 
well-being for yourself is I believe in that sense of progress. So enjoying the journey mm. and feeling like you're moving that one step forward. So I emphasize growth and progress mm. over anything. I think um, there's a really good quote that Adam Grant, you know, the, the famous organizational yes. psychologist, I follow his Twitter, and he wrote today a quote, um, or something he said, self-quote, saying that um, best isn't important but better is. Yeah. So to sort of focus on progress instead yeah. of destination. Yeah. Absolutely. And enjoy the journey. I mean, that's kind mm. of getting all – you know, high level philosophical mm. where we're not working all the way towards the end of our the day we die. Yep. The whole point of life is to live. And so I've been reading more about that these days in terms of getting myself out of the weeds and going actually yep. why you know why are we here. And but I think a lot of it is yeah, just enjoying the journey, having the sense of progress if you're not moving forward. And that's what's motivating as well. And that's um, you know, the relationships you have, all those types of things mm. and being okay with not being okay all the time. Um, but it's always about, okay, you make a choice every day and that's kind of, yeah. So don't worry if you're not in this bliss happiness yeah. state. It's So just say that we move the focus a bit to well-being. Um, yeah. What does it mean to you and sort of how has it shifted over time? Yeah, definitely. So I think um, when I first started getting interested in well-being, it was uh, probably my early 20s and um, I've always been an active person, probably more stereotypically healthy you know into well-being I was like ah, oh, it's about eating well and running and and all of that and didn't really connect it to the workplace and my dad actually he's he's still alive now but he mm. had a heart attack at 44 mm. and he was what I would classify a workaholic um so very into his work and I was 21 at the time and I already had this image of people not liking work and now I was like you don't like work and now it's something that can kill you mm. or nearly kill you um so those two combinations have came together. So for me, well-being outside of work, it's kind of this concept of well-being and that's um, – I, I originally thought it was just about eating well and looking after yourself. Um, now it's very much, okay, it's the social relationships you have, it's a sense of growth, it's a sense of purpose and having meaning in the world. Mm. Um, that's how you have a have a good sense of well-being. And then the workplace, um, it's not that it's anything different. It's that the workplace can be a source of well-being for you. Yep. And that's how I've really shifted when I start talking about workplace well-being. It's not about uh, can we offer healthy food at work or can we get people going for run. Those are all things that can kind of contribute to over well overall well-being. But well-being in the workplace is what are the factors about the way we do work, um, the work itself, and the work environment that can either add to or take away from someone's overall well-being. And I think this is all so new. So I yeah. think a lot of workplaces, <laughs> when you ask them about the well-being of their people, they run, you know, like the Pulse survey or whatever, their own made-up survey, sort of how you're going and it's yeah. good, all right, well, well-being is great. Um, but then if you had to ask them, you know, how do you influence or improve well-being, people are generally at a loss other than occasional perks or just pay people more was sort of used to be the old answer. Yeah. But, of course, now we know that, you know, money is not a, a lead indicator in or, or variable in shaping that well-being. So what are the kind of things that you talk about when you speak with clients? And Yeah, sure. I You've you got to rein me in now if I go off, <laughs> go off on tangents. You, but you have free reign. You're the yeah. guest. <laughs> so at a kind of a – if you're an, if you're a company and you to your point you know you want to you're worried about well-being or you want to kind of build a better place for well-being and um so say you, rather than just looking at individual states so traditionally we just look at individual and the old way we looked at well-being was um asking questions like how many times do you eat salad for lunch you know how many runs do you have how many hours sleep do you get um those things are important but that kind of sits more in the scope of the individual kind of world 
And so just understand that individual. And if and then you end up in an argument with companies or organizations where they say, you know, it's not my role to look after how many hours sleep someone has. Yep. Um, exactly. So what I look at is instead of let's move the attention to what an organization can control yeah, and to your sure. point, what are the things we can actually do. So looking at your overall culture, like does your culture support well-being? Um, that's like if you set up, say, a policy in place that people can do flexible work yep. and they can leave at 5 o'clock mm-hmm. or 4 o'clock or mm-hmm. 3 o'clock and then you have someone pack up their desk at 3 o'clock and go to leave and someone gives them that look that, you know, you better sit down if you want to, yeah, if you know yep. it's good for you kind of yep, look. Yep. Those are not social norms that support well-being or even yep. what you're, you're trying to do. So does your culture support it? Does your company support it as well? So you're genuinely investing in it or you kind of well-being washing? Yes. It? Oh, that's the thing, well-being oh, washing. I probably just made it up. but no, I'm sure it, I, it sounds like it might be a thing. Yeah, where yeah. people say, well, actually there's um, Dr. Uh, Peggy Kern talks about it as the three Fs. Yep. The we do well-being because we offer fruit, uh, flu shots, and fitness. <laughs> <laughs> and so I love that. Like, and I'm like, no, that's not your well-being kind of tick box done. But, but that's what people but people have this way of reducing sort of reductionism around things like like yeah. difficult concepts. Let's take the most tangible things that we can um, throw at that problem, and maybe yeah. that'll fix everything. Yeah. So it's going let's and so going. Okay, not yeah. I'm not telling you not to offer fruit yeah. salad or not yeah. to offer flu shots. Those yeah. are all great things, yeah. but they're not enough. Yeah, they, so, they, they sound like they might be almost like symptoms of good well-being absolutely. culture rather than like uh, uh, um, drivers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when we look at actually what you know, how do we start to understand well-being in the work? Or if you're yeah. going to improve it, um, there's yeah, the culture. Does the company feel committed to it? Um, and then you start to look at okay, uh, a manager plays a really important role yeah. in building a culture of well-being for people. Mm-hmm. So. Do managers know how to ask people if they're okay? Yeah. And if they say they're not okay, do managers actually know what to say back? Yeah. Um, do they are they interested? Do they show a yeah. genuine, you know, interest? Do they actually care? And then at an individual level, um, it is more about like in the workplace, it's about the relationships you have. So we spoke about that social piece. Yeah. So do you feel supported by the people that you have? Yeah. Do you feel that you can genuinely go to them? Do you feel like in the sense of cohesion? Do you have a sense of belonging? Mm. Um can you get into what Martin Sagelman calls engagement or a sense of flow? Yeah. Can you find space where you can do some of your best work? Um, so flow is really important. Mm. I spoke about progress already. So do you feel like you're making progress? Do you feel like you're experiencing growth? Yeah. Learning and development comes into this, and people don't often see learning and development as a part of well-being, but it definitely is. Oh, I think absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So if you're not experiencing a sense of progress or growth, it can be uh, not very good for your mental health. Mm. Um, so – that is like a huge piece. And then um, do you experience purpose or meaning? So you'd love that. So are you finding your work is actually fulfilling? And yeah. purpose is not a new age thing that millennials want. Mm. Like it often gets, you know, oh, all the millennials want to have purpose and meaning now. We've always wanted to have purpose and meaning. Well, Chloe, that's where purpose washing is your uh, similar term to the yeah. well-being washing. We have so many um, phonies out there just talking about how good purpose is. Like it's yeah. it's just been invented uh, you know, you have to go back a couple of thousand years if you really yeah. want to understand it. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. So we want to feel like we're making a difference at work, and this yeah. is really important for our, our overall well being. Um, but I think like the the purpose washing is like grafting a fake or like sort of superficially for good thing on top of a not so connected kind of maybe mission or something yeah. like that. And then people just feel empty. And yeah. even if you uh, kind of force mission, so you should feel connected. We're doing a great thing, and people don't. Um, it's kind of this artificial sense of 
purpose, which is probably what you're getting at. Yeah, I, um, I like I like trying to understand how people feel in terms of alignment between um, like the company's mission and their own purpose. Yeah, like that's I find that to be quite a good question around you know like do you connect to a higher purpose and does the company kind of reflect that? Because um, I think I think many people can can just connect to a company's purpose, but it's that higher kind of social mission that probably drives a lot more. Uh, loyalty, engagement, and a lot of the other stuff. Yeah, and yeah. we definitely uh, we see that in our data. I can mm. talk about data for a second, sure. but yeah, we do employee engagement surveys. So we get a lot of data on how people feel, and we also get a lot of data on why people leave organisations. Um, and there's as they're saying, you know, people join companies and leave managers. We don't see that in our data. We people see they join organisations and they leave leaders. Or yeah. they leave because they don't feel yeah. connected to the purpose, or they leave because they don't get growth and development. Hmm. Um, so, and this is globally. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, bringing it back to Culture Amp, do you have um, a Culture Amp, and do you, as Chloe, yes. have like <laughs> a, a, a definition of culture? Oh, <laughs> I mean, the culture, I think of it as just, you know, the way we do things around yes. here. Yeah, it's a yeah. very typical it's a way. And definition, yeah. I don't think there's a need to kind of overcomplicate yeah, it. Yeah. Um, we think about the term of culture first, yeah. which is to me, people who put, you know, the way they put culture first before they make other decisions. So you do, you think about culture in terms of important decisions and yes. you, rather than you go, okay, we really need to do this because it's important for the growth of our business, but it's going to mess our culture up. You actually go, actually let's balance the impact it's going to have on our culture with the impact it's going to have on our business. And you can have both and actually having a, great culture or invest in your culture as a way to be more productive as a business. What, what role do you think trust plays in cultures, in, in cultural formation or development? I get this. I get asked this a lot. Oh, really? Um, I thought it was an awful question. No, you no. Have to get we better get, at this. We, we get, it's great. <laughs> we get asked about trust a lot in organisations. Yeah. And trust is a – I'm really rethinking the way I think about trust as well because trust sometimes almost has this kind of – two-way, like I, I trust you and therefore you owe me something. Yes, um, like a reciprocity type absolutely, of Absolutely, which yep. I don't even always think is healthy. I think trust is obviously important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a part of kind of having confidence and believing in the organisation and I have confidence in my company. I have confidence in what I'm doing. Mm. Um, and then the trust thing, I think it, I like more kind of the psychological safety. I believe yep. that you're going to look after me and that I'm safe here and that I'm – you know that we have a we have a an agreement and a relationship here yeah. in this workplace, and I think where things get into trouble is we do we are people, but we have a relationship with an organisation, but the organisation is not necessarily another individual, but we often treat it like that, and sometimes that can get really messy. Yep. If that kind of makes sense, it does. I think trust is an interesting one. I'm starting to believe that it's just fundamental to both personal and work yeah. relationships and the work relationships are sort of so much of what form culture. So I think you sort of start to see that in uh, low trust workplaces, they almost inevitably have a terrible culture. Like it's, it's it'll be quite yeah. hard to find a good example of a low trust workplace with a great culture. Yeah. Yeah. And we yeah. see, you know, um, where they don't have comp, we have a question around, I have confidence in mm. the leaders. Mm. Where we see that low, we see low engagement. Yeah. And so, you know, if you don't have confidence, you don't believe the right intentions of an organization, you don't trust, it's it's not a very good place to be. It's like psychological safety is broken if mm. there's no trust. Mm. What do you say? I mean, you must get this a bit and obviously you have an answer and your own thoughts on it, but um, 
when people say that culture is just not that important as long as you sort of keep delivering the you know the bottom line. Yeah. Um, if, so if if a company is performing well on an ongoing basis, how much attention do you need to pay to the culture, and how how big of a deal is that? Oh, this is such a hard because <laughs> I'm such a humanist. <laughs> yeah. I'm like it's just the right thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the thing about culture is that we talk about this a bit. Is that it's um. One, it is the right thing to do. The other thing is it is the thing that's going to hold you together when things don't go well. Yeah. So if you can guarantee that your business is going to keep going well, good luck to you. Ignore your culture. But I guarantee that the day something goes wrong, mm. everything is going to fall apart and people are going to leave and you're going to have nothing to hold on to. Yeah. So culture is – this is not the only reason to invest in it. I mean, it is a great thing to do for people. But if you invest in your culture – it's going to be the thing that keeps you together when stuff doesn't go so well. And when you say invest in the culture, I mean, some of the stuff we were talking about before is almost like how to be in a workplace yeah. rather than what to do. Yeah. So like just understanding uh, how to ask the right questions or yeah. how to initiate a conversation, like the way things that are done around here might be like um, it's someone's birthday, we all celebrate that, someone has a kid, everyone is you know knows and can text them. And like yeah. just So is that like do you ever think like it's just – explaining to people the ideal state rather than the behavior or is it a bit of both i think it's a bit of both like it's sort of a combination and um i mean invest in your culture is like what does that mean does it mean having yeah. to your point birthday cakes yeah. every celebration yeah. if that's something that you want to do great but i sort of see investing in your culture as just not letting it run its own course without any attention to the active stewardship over it maybe absolutely so you i mean i'm data driven so you ask questions yeah. and also by asking people questions you also say what's important. So a bit of your your question around, you know, is it what do we say what it is? Is it, do we just wait for the behavior? Asking a question kind of guides the behavior. Yeah. And so you're not going in blindly. It's like a relationship with a, another person. You can go through this whole relationship, but if you never actually talk about what's working or what isn't, you can never improve on it. And is that something that you're big on at Culture Ramp internally? Yes. <laughs> yeah. We can and one of the questions we do get is, you know, is your culture just amazing? Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Hmm. Um one of the things I love about Culture Amp and why I'm still there after four years is that even though our culture's not perfect, we're dedicated to improving it. So we've always got things going on. We don't have the perfect culture. We've got pockets where things are happening that I'm like, oh, why is it happening here? But we're always invested in improving it. And again, to that sense of progress as an organization, I will join a company if I can see that they're putting effort into their culture, even mm. if they don't have what I think is the perfect culture. Did you know that like Culture Amp had a very good culture before you joined? This is quite small at the time. Yeah. There were only 20 people, so yeah. I could chat to all of them. <laughs> I liked all of them, so I joined. <laughs> could, you, could you tell from like your first interactions with uh, Mr. McPherson that was yeah. sort of, yeah. you know, this is my kind of place? Yeah, absolutely, I think. And I've seen – a part of my role is is helping to grow the culture and mm. make sure that it's you know and and bring it on bring people on and what's your best thing that you're doing at the moment to sort of help with the culture are you trying anything new that you, you oh, share always experimenting yeah. um well one thing is actually running the well-being internal at culture mm-hmm. because we are you know fast growing and we've got um we you know we're growing at a pace and people are working long hours so I'm always concerned about that so I'll um I'll a people partner in San Francisco is running the survey, so that's one of the things. The other thing is we're doing is uh, experimenting a lot with behavior change. 
and Culturamp are our guinea culture ampers, our campers, our guinea pigs. So we're trying to understand from a personal development point of view, what are the things that really drive change and what are the things that motivate people. Yep. Um, and so we're doing a lot of work around that. That will, of course, feed into our product, mm. but we're doing it with our campers to start. And if we end up building something that is just fantastic for our campers, but maybe not anyone else, that's yep. okay. We'll, we'll keep it. And then You might need to just quickly do a bit of a terminology breakdown. Uh, You're yes, talking about sorry. camps and campers. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> tell me about the unique way of doing things at Culture Amp. Oh, that's right. Forget about that. Um, so we're, we're broken up into we, – we're Culture Amp. We're called campers. Um, we're broken up into camps, which is similar to a tribes model, what Spotify does. So camps are – in product and they kind of groups of teams that collect around a certain kind of purpose yep. or, or part of – with us, it's a part of the product. Yep. So I'm in something called the ACT camp, which is all about taking action and driving change and developing and growing people. So it, it came from – we're traditionally known as, yes, an amazing survey company and analytics um, and didn't have so much focus on taking action um, and that's where the shift has changed. So How interesting. So – when you talk about camps, I just think about like gumboots and, uh, you know, tarps and such. Marshmallows. Marshmallows, <laughs> maybe a bit of scrogging. Uh, how does it break? Like, does it look like a camp or it's just like. <laughs> I wish it looked like a camp. I wish I had tents and everything. No. It just shows how out of date I am with like, you know, latest company culture. So what I actually thought it was a camp. But we've, it's, we've got little segments yeah. set up. No, we, so we work in a, it's a, a pretty open plan office. So we have sort of zones. We mm. hot desk. Uh, but we have zones or neighborhoods, I guess. And it's essentially just a group of, a collection of teams that work together. And we have almost like a little mini identity within your camp and then in the broader company as well. So I have to ask you, um, what, when you think about culture, how important is the role of the, the CEO in a company sort of at setting the culture and also like, you know, um, taking a bit of a, a sense check of the culture or like, you know, Sam having that feedback up to him or her and then dictating that back down as well. Yeah. I think um, one of the things I've seen with the customers that we work with is that if your leadership team and your CEO are not bought into the value of culture, you're going to have a very hard time. Not impossible, but it's going to be really hard. So the CEO and the leadership team are really important in terms of setting the vision and, and being interested in it. It just makes everything easy. I'm lucky that Didier is such a advocate for the culture and he yep. really believes in it. And when you see him on stage and talking about it, he's not only a huge internal ambassador, he's a massive external ambassador. So I think he is doing a lot for other CEOs out there yep. to hopefully look at him and go, okay, actually culture, we're doing pretty okay. Yeah. And you, you're investing in culture and hopefully I'll do the same. So I think leaders, um, and owners of businesses, you play a huge role in setting um, the compass. I like to think of it as like the compass direction for yeah. the culture. But is it also like setting the um, interest level in being involved yeah. in that as really well? Really good way to put yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The kind of what is important, you can set the agenda yeah. and you can put it low on the – like on a – and say just in a, in a meeting purpose, yeah. you can – you know, maybe allocate two minutes at the end to be like, how's everyone going? Great, culture's done. Yeah. Or you can put it higher up the list. Well, and-, do you, and do you think like um, it is a risk like for an organisation, as you said before, if they are going well, not to spend time on culture because they're going well? Absolutely. Yeah. And they don't necessarily invest in it. But there's always there's always things to improve. And like I said, if you're growing or 
um, you know, every with the work world of work is changing so fast. Everybody's at risk of disruption. Mm. So you know, invest in people, um, and you don't know if you're going well, and you invest in culture. Do you think how much better you could be? Yeah. It's like a real optimizer. Absolutely. It's, do you yeah. have, um, like obviously you've got thousands of clients, but do you have a couple of organizations out there, either locally or globally, who you think have a great culture and you sort of like, you like personally or aspire to a little bit? Oh, I've got personal favorites. Yeah, I actually really love, um, there are some amazing ones out there that we yeah. work with, like Airbnb's a, a, a classic company. Yeah. They have some great stuff. Um, more locally in Melbourne, um, there's, you know, MYOB, there's REA. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do really great stuff. I love uh, smaller, we call them fish, but smaller companies, um, sort of sub 200. Personally, I love them. and Yeah, I like them too. I, I find them to be a really interesting case study. Yeah. Possibly because of also the whole Dunbar's number thing, you know, so there's sort of that Absolutely. right interesting size. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and also, I mean, we'll probably maybe get onto this when I think about my own kind of the organisations I really want to help and work with at kind of more, at, you know, now and maybe in the future is those smaller companies, maybe even less than 50. Yeah. Um, because having joined Culture Up at 20, well, I was lucky enough to have four founders who really understood culture and did a, you know, really deliberate job of setting it up. Um, and then when you get to a certain size, you can invest more financially on, say, uh, you know, surveys and things like that. But when you're less than 20 or 50 people, there's a great opportunity to do some culture work there. And, but, it's the last thing on your mind when you're growing as a company. Yeah. So, yeah, kind of want to edge some of the efforts into that as well. Grow that sort of zero to 50. Yeah, and helping that. Pie. And particularly from the wellbeing point of view is uh, – There's a lot of people putting in very long hours in the absolutely. zero to 50 size. Yeah. And, I'm sure. you know, the stress of being uh, running your own business or being a founder and then bringing on people um, and that kind of wellbeing aspect often gets overlooked. Yeah. So not only the culture aspect but then, okay – we're bringing on people and, you know, they're working long hours and we're doing really great, but I'm worried about their well-being. I'm worried about my own well-being. Yeah. Because um, they're kind of that interesting almost like pre-HR director size. Yeah. So it's, it's like spot on. Who, who takes care of the people, yeah. you know, because they can't – they're obviously not many of them, unless they're very enlightened, are thinking yeah. about their own, you know, looking after Absolutely. well-being. Yeah. Ah, that's, that's interesting. Absolutely. That's like yeah. what can you – how can you supplement HR yeah. before they get an HR person or that's head of people? Or- really well said, really well put. Do you think much about like a, a company's form, an organization's form, like in terms of how they value culture, like the difference between not-for-profits and companies and, you know, B Corps or social businesses um, as sort of being different or do you just sort of think they all, you know, have people, they all have cultures that are sort of much of a mushness? Yeah, I, probably closer to that. I think it's just yeah. – Human beings getting together, um, trying to do some organized yeah. work yeah. that has a contribution in the world. And yeah. whether you're, you know, there's definitely differences in the cultures, but essentially it's still human beings getting together. Sure. So not-for-profit, B Corps, government, all that. What makes them different is the different structures or systems that you have around those people. Yeah. But you still got the, you're going to have the same challenges or the, yeah yeah. Now you love that t-shirt. You were wearing it when I first talked to you on the uh, uh, Zoom call. It says <laughs> it says people geek. Uh, tell me about that. Is that a um, cultural so ambition? This, this, I'm such a brand ambassador. You really are. You're being the brand. <laughs> um, this is a people geek. T- yeah, this is so cultram. Uh, yes, is the the platform, but. 
People gigs are our community. So we've got, I think it's over 60,000 global members of people geeks. And it's really, it doesn't, it's not, it has, doesn't have to be our customers. It's really just people who are interested in people and data and creating better workplaces. Um, so How do we, I join? Where do I sign you can, up? You can sign up. <laughs> <laughs> so this actually came about really early on um, when we started working in San Francisco and we, you know, wanted to run events and we found that there wasn't, not saying we're cool, but no, actually we are quite cool. There weren't, you know, pro- many progressive, cool kind of HR gatherings. And there were amazing forward-thinking people working in HR, yeah. people in the experience who didn't have their tribe. And we kind of got this these kind of dynamic misfits of HR people together and then it's just grown. Um, I've always considered myself a dynamic misfit of something, so I have to come along. You can come along. You're a people geek. You definitely are a yeah, people geek. Yeah, so. I feel like I might be. Yeah, 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 that's awesome. Um, so look, well-being's big. How do you look after yourself, and what are the things that are important to you to sort of turn up as your best self every day? Yeah, well, you caught me on one of the things tonight. So yeah. I, I have weird rules. I said I don't know if they're weird, but um, I've never worked in a job that I can't walk or bike to. Yep. So that for me is um, the idea of starting the day right and ending the day right. Yep. Or And get in a bit of like movement. So it's obvious like physical side, but for me it's almost like a way to decompress. And I've just done that. I've just always ridden to work or walked to work um, for as long as I I feel lucky that I've managed to do that. So for me it's that. Um, it's spending time with my family, mm. uh, a lot of that. It's, it's the obvious stuff like eating yeah. well, all those kind of things. Um, I spend as much time as I can in the ocean, Yep. Um, getting to the beach. And I really – I. I do believe in that sense of progress. So I do a lot of life projects or experiments. So I'm content, con- constantly like trying to learn a new skill or doing something random. Or Tell me about join- one of them. Pick just one. Oh, so I've had many failings, which is kind of a good thing as well is to not be good at things. Yeah. Um, I gave roller derby a go for six weeks. Wow. So that didn't work out so like, well. Like recently? No, this was probably it. This was a few years ago. Um, yeah. More recently, I guess a few years ago, I did a project where I gave a flower to a stranger every day for 100 days. It was just a, a very random project. Yeah, um, I it's a random to, acts of kindness kind of thing. Yep, it yep. was on that. Um, I've actually recently did uh, Act a Day. Um, so that's with my friend Cullum, who actually would be possibly perfect for this. Yeah, He is um, doing amazing work getting co- little groups of people together and giving them really small acts of um I guess society to help make change in society and you do that for 30 days. Yep. And so it might be everything from, you know, going into your local supermarket and uh, talking to them about their use of plastic bags or to your local bar and saying don't use straws hmm. to writing a letter to your MP to whatever your cause and it, yeah. you do 30 days of it. Yep. Um, so I did that uh, about a, f- a few months ago. And do you like, do you sort of use data to think about how you're going before and after or do you just write notes or how do you know how it went afterwards? Yeah, I do. Do you think about it or? I think about it. I write, yeah. sometimes I take notes. Um, yeah. Sometimes it's more progress related. Like learning a skill, like learning how to hula hoop was yep. something I just had to like visually watch, yeah. uh, like see. Um, yeah. And sometimes, yeah, I mean, if it's data related more, it's like the sense of progress that I get. But I do a lot of journaling to kind of check in on things. Um, and do you journal every day? I wish I did everything every day <laughs> no yeah, i journal probably three or four times a week yeah um so i do yeah i do a bit of that uh it's it's how good's experimenting i love it i love it and for it's me, my lifeblood it is, it's like that's the as far as my well-being i think that's the thing that keeps me interested and keeps me yeah. enjoying the journey and i do do a lot of reflection on where i'm at kind of 
you know, a few times a year I do. Are you like, a goal setter? Like do you sort of, do you start, I have friends who use like the Tony Robbins wheel and like, you know, things like that. So that, you know, the different categories of what you want to do and what your goals are. Yeah. Do you do that or? I your... actually don't. Yeah. So I don't really follow many of the traditional yeah. things that say, you know, set. I have kind of a fuzzy vision of what I want to do. And I have more of a, what is, I think about whether um, I'm on the right path to that. Yes. I set goals in terms of really immediate things that I want to do. It looks more like a to-do list. Yep. Um, I decide on whatever I'm project I'm working on. And so a book is one of them at the moment. So I have to set oh. kind of deadlines for that. Yep. But um, no, and I, I do a lot more reflection and kind of set loose kind of fuzzy guidelines around where I want to go. And then I just check in a lot how I'm moving. A question I'm starting to ask people more because yeah. I've become more interested in it is – as you sort of like go through life and get more and more experience, do you rely on your gut more or do you kind of block out your gut more and just try and be more rational? I was actually going to, when you said to use goals, I was like, I use my gut a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I definitely used a lot more goal setting when I was like earlier on. Yeah. Um, I had, I, I was pretty structured in what I would do and I would set, you know, this is what I want to do. And for me, for my personality, I think I veer towards the obsessive type. So for me, my goal was actually being more relaxed and having yep. more moderation and then experimenting more and being okay with failure and being okay with not doing everything mm. to the structured plan. And I've really embraced that in kind of the last four years and then learned how to kind of, yeah, pay attention to my gut and whether it feels right and is it aligned. Do a lot of work with values. So understanding what your own values are, what they are in workplaces and being able to you don't always have to be able to articulate them, but you've got to have a good sense of whether they're off kilter or not. Yeah, so yeah. Um, for me, what's been really good in helping me work is I know that it's important for me in the workplace to, you know, be intellectually challenged, yep. have a sense of design and creativity, work with people. I know those. So if those three things are in place. Wait, what was the three? Work with people, intellectually challenged. What was the third? Design one? or creativity. Design and creativity. So. Yeah those kind of things merge yep. together. Yep. And, of course, there's things like having an influence and making a difference, but yep. those are the three that I've known and I check in on those every year. And if they're not being met, then I know I need to make some changes. Um, and I'm pretty ruthless with making changes in my life, so I will go, okay, this isn't working, plan. Love it. It's so, so scientific. <laughs> yeah. It's my, got like a half, yeah, like a values and then science, so yes. My latest um, change or experiment was infrared saunas. I've uh, been going two or three times a week since last week because I found one that was more local. Yeah. It's been very interesting. It's a, oh. it's a really like a cleansing situation. I, uh, so there's a bit of like, you know, debate in the, in the science. Yeah. You know, does it, what does it actually do? Does it do anything useful? I found it to be incredibly refreshing and relaxing. Amazing. So, yeah. I I have never tried them before. Yeah. I haven't actually done flotation tanks either, so I need to do that. So I did the flotation tank once. I tried that. Uh, once was enough. Let's put it that yep. way. The salty. <laughs> I feel like you're about to say something. The, the saltiness of the the water rubbing against skin is just. Uh, I found it terrible. Like I, I was like, when can I leave? Basically, oh, right. Uh, you know, you're it's the opposite like, of yeah, the experience yeah. you're meant to have. That's right. You're supposed to zone out and just be like, oh, this is like being in the womb again or something like that. I was like, um, when can I get out of this death trap? I'm itchy and I am. It's not warm enough. Like, what's going on? Oh, no, like yeah. a lukewarm – because I really like hot springs. So yeah. I feel if it was like a lukewarm – It's not warm enough. It's like frustratingly 
in the middle temperature-wise. Because it's meant to be sensory deprivation, so you're not yeah. meant to feel. Yeah. It's probably meant to be like uh, body temperature water so that you can be a bit higher than that, but maybe like 42 degrees, 43. So it's like just it feels a bit warm, but like it's not enough warm to make you too distracted from like nothingness. Oh, yes, no. Yeah. I like um, I like warm, yeah. like being in the heat. Yeah, I like so. the heat too. So, yeah, yeah the infrared sort of has been awesome. Um, so what – what are you sort of excited about now that you're up to either, you know, in Coltramp or in your own life Otherwise, that you're embarking on? Yeah. So I think probably spoken a lot about Coltramp. So yeah. really just, just on that, you know, the stuff we're doing in individual development and change is really exciting. <laughs> um, for me, I uh, always working on side projects. So the the thing that I'm probably most excited about is is writing a book and I wanted to put this off until I was like, say, 16. I felt I had enough, you know. I you would have forgotten all the good stuff. I, I <laughs> Thank you. I thought I have, a right, I have a right to write a book when I'm, when yeah. I'm 16. Yeah. I thought, no, actually, I want to do this just to go through the process of yeah. that. And it is on well-being and it's what I was talking about around helping organisations who are smaller. So rough working title is founder fitness, but it's the idea of um, – how can organizations that are really small or small businesses or mm. small founders who want to do something in that well-being space and make sure they're looking after themselves and their people get off on the right track. Um, and the other thing is combining what I know about behavior change and why people do and don't do things and using that to help organizations that are doing social impact things actually get people to do stuff. Because we know one of the things is it's not a knowledge gap. We know sometimes that there's problems, or but we don't always know where to start. So making it super easy is like a really nice place to start is go, okay, what are the really easy things we can do? And then why don't people do things? And I haven't solved this problem yet, but when I do, I want to kind of feed it into all the good places. I love it. Very excited. Yeah. So look, where can people uh, connect with you and learn more about your wonderful work? Ah, so LinkedIn is probably the best place for now. I can, I'm happy to connect. I'm, um, yeah, and otherwise you can email me, uh, Chloe at cultureamp.com. Prepare to be flooded. No, no it won't be that bad. <laughs> I, I, love, I love talking to people, so it's great. Awesome. I can definitely attest to that, and it's just been lovely having you. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player. Why not share the podcast with a friend? You could also leave us a five-star review in your podcast player. You may also want to join us for one of our regular live podcasts or to become a show sponsor. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com.au and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook.